Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Novogratz, and this is Next with Nova. Guys, welcome to Next with Novo. This episode is special. I've got Bianca Tylek. She is a feisty fighter who wants to dismantle profiteering in prisons, who wants to take money out of the prison system, this unjust system we have. I've known her for a few years. I'm more impressed every month I see her as she grows her strength, her tenacity. She'll stand up to anybody. If you think about David and Goliath, you got to meet Bianca. And so, Bianca, tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, why are you so angry? I'm not actually angry, although I am angry about a lot of things that are going on in our society. So, you know, at Worth Rises, we work specifically to dismantle the prison industry. The industry is an $80 billion industry that is working every single day to extract as many resources as possible out of communities that are impacted by incarceration, which are disproportionately black and brown. And I can tell you where that anger started for me. Please. My story, right, back when I was um, a young person, I was um, getting caught up in, in a lot of things, making a lot of decisions that probably my parents were not super pleased with. You know, found myself in the juvenile system, uh, had to stand in front of a court a few times, right? But things sort of escalated pretty quickly. And, and what I was going to get to around sort of when I got angry, really angry, um, I think the first time it was when I was 15, my boyfriend was murdered. And that's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot for a young person, right, to, um, yeah, to sit through. And I, I remember that moment and that time and um, that suffering. And what happened that week was there was an article written in our local paper. And the article was about his murder and who he was and all these things. And when I first started reading it, the, the headline was something to the effect of shrine erected for slain man. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. I start reading, and the last line of the article read, at least he died in a pool of his favorite color. Yeah. I was angry. Like, I was 15, and I was angry, and I didn't know what to do or what to say. I didn't know why. I just knew there was something wrong, that, like, our lives weren't somebody else's creative writing project. And so how did you harness that? You went to college, you went to law school. The thing that I really benefited from is always doing really well in school. And so, you know, coming out of that, I still managed to kind of get myself together uh, in a really important and powerful way. And I ended up going to Columbia for undergrad. And I will say that transition was also hard. Um, I remember uh, friends from my community coming to visit me at Columbia and that being a real culture clash. Um, some real moments of, of tense conversations. I mean, to the extent that, like, there were actually classmates of mine at Columbia. Like, I didn't, like, talk to people. People didn't talk to me, actually, I should say, because they were scared of me. Scared they of were scared friends. of what I brought to campus. And that was frustrating. It was a thing I had to sort of figure out. Like, how do I navigate this world and, you know, my community where I come from and help them understand each other? Um, and so that was, you know, interesting, uh, but through college, you know, ended up coming out and strangely going to finance. Let me flip back before we go forward with the, the, the transition of finance. You know, I'm still thinking you're 15 years old and your boyfriend gets murdered and it's just trauma. Like it's just trauma. You're in the traumatic. How did you process? How did you get through that? Or wh when did you get through that? I don't know that you ever get through it. 
right? Um, to this day, I have a three by four foot painting on my wall in my living room, right? The biggest piece of art I have in my house is about his murder. And it's been 17, 18, 19 years since then. Um, so I don't think there's a moment you forget a tragedy like that. I still think it's a thing I think about very often. And when I say very often, I would say, you know, daily, every other day. Like, right. it's, it's, it's a very regular thing. And so I will say this about what it was like when I was young. I actually didn't tell anybody, like, in some of my worlds for a long time. I lived a very strange life in terms of a dichotomy because I went to this – I got kicked out of school, so I, I went to this private high school. Um, and so I had, like, my community back home, and then I had this school. It was kind of like I felt like for the most part I was, like, going to work every day. I, like, went to work from, like, 7 to, like, 3, and then I went and, like, went back to my community, my home. And so I just didn't tell anybody for a really long time. And my reality, I didn't tell my best friend in like high school, anything. I just felt like I needed to be comfortable telling the story without fully breaking down. And that building that type of defense mechanism um, builds a different kind of strength. You know, people ask me sometimes about light bulb moments. I'm like, there's no light bulb moments. You just don't have this moment where you're like, a, it's, it's about the support mechanisms for the things that you're good at, right? And the reality is what I remember about both his death, like, and him and his legacy is that he really wanted me to be successful. And I think it was with that that I, um, I think I took that energy, you know, when he passed and I was like, I'm going to win. Um, when did you decide, you know, and, and is it for part of that legacy of like, frickin' I'm going to fix something? Like, what was that moment where you decided I'm going and spend my life and, you know, trying to dismantle this shit system that we have called criminal justice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say so. It's interesting. I actually every time I applied to an institution a fellowship anything like including college like I always talked about that that was the the leading it was always the essay right whenever there was a personal statement there was a um something that you had to kind of like tell what you're going to do in the future it was always like I want to work with the community um around criminal justice like around the people that other people have condemned Right. That has always been, for one reason or another, like the space in which I felt more most comfortable. Um, and so I actually went into Columbia with that. And I remember because I didn't let my parents see my personal statement, my essay, because I you know, felt like they were going to have feelings about it. And my dad read it before he put it in the mail. And he comes back to me and he says, I don't know if you're going to get in with that. And I was like, I'm going to do this my way. Like, that's the only way I know how is I'm going to get in with what is in my soul and my spirit and my being. And if I don't, that's okay. Because we have to be true to who we are. And that was, and then when I went in, you know, I think I was just constantly feeling out my path. Um, and I was able to, like, really transition into criminal justice full-time um, after law school, as you know. But that was... So you did Wall Street how long? Two years? Four years. Four years. Yeah. Where'd you work? I was, uh, so I actually, um, 
started as an intern in uh, undergrad at Goldman Sachs for a few years, and then I went to Morgan Stanley, and I was at Morgan Stanley full-time for two years after uh, college, and then went to Citigroup and spent two years at Citigroup. Wow, so you were a real gold, I mean, Wall Street. Oh, yeah, I've been at all the big banks, like, really took that time, and um, yeah, learned what I learned. So you get graduate from law school. When did you start with Rises? Right away? Almost right away. So I actually, I took one more year between Wall Street and law school, and then I went to law school um, in uh, 2013, that was, um, and spent three years in law school, obviously, and it was at that time that I came out and I was like, no, I'm, I'm ready to do the thing I really want to do. And so when I came out, I started first in a, uh, in a fellowship at an organization, and, you know, that just wasn't a good fit for me and it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And then most importantly, though, I had just started to identify a gap and started to identify a place where I could really uniquely um, support the movement. Your basic mission is to get money out of the jail system, right? Profiteering in prisons. A, to me, it's like just immoral and unethical. Like no one should prof- profit from the caging of people. Uh, I believe that, you know, in my in my soul. So you figured out... This was a, a gap. How did you do that? Like, I started talking to people. Like, I, I had always been interested in maybe partially, like, from, my, you know, my working past or whatever about the business of prisons. Like, people who, this inequity, I think most of my life was also shaped around these, like, visions of inequity, right? Seeing folks who, who really didn't have with folks who had a lot and just watching these dichotomies in life, right? As a like mixed race person, there's a dichotomy you have in your life, right? Of like, oh, this is like this one culture and there's this other culture. So it was like, there's so, like when I was in high school, right? Like going to this private school that, you know, where folks had money and had wealth and, um, and then the like few of us who were, um, not per se the scholarship kids, but there was literally, like, I remember my senior year, we had a class trip to Florida uh, three students didn't go in the entire class. All three of them were students of color, two black girls and myself, and all the other students went because we couldn't afford to go, right? So, like, you, like I saw this sort of throughout right. my life, right, this, this, like, inequity, and it just always interested me. And so I, coming off of Wall Street and all those years, I kind of saw how money was made, and I would talk to people in like the criminal justice world about the exploitation and everybody would sort of kind of shrug their shoulders, toss their hands up and say, well, what are you going to do about capitalism? So let's 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 help the, the, the audience understand a little bit about where money shows up in prisons. Yeah. Right? We, we hear about private prisons. There's not that many private prisons, uh, but there's tons of ways people profit off of the caging business. So take us through from the highest to the lowest and just in kind of fast order. Yeah. Uh, what pisses you off? And like, I'll give you just some how many examples. Things? Yeah, give me some examples. Yeah. So, as you said, there's private prisons. Everybody likes to talk about the private prisons. Um, they make up 8% of all beds in the correctional system. A lot more in the immigration system, you know, we should acknowledge over nearly 80%. But in the criminal system, about 8%. So, where does profiteering show up otherwise? In public, publicly run prisons and jails, nearly everything has been externally contracted to private corporations, from laundry services to maintenance to food and and commissary to telecom. You sort of name it, it's been outsourced. I mean, the architecture and construction firm that builds prisons and jails, right, is making money off of this. And, And it's not 
um, you know, some will say, oh, it's a service uh, provider, or this, that, and the other, who's going to do it? And they, they kind of toss their hands up. Not true. They actually, uh, prison construction companies in, in particular, they will give campaign financing dollars to sheriffs who want to build new jails. So like, this is very intentional uh, exposure and cooperation with the correctional system. But telecom is another example, right? You have niche prison telecom corporations that charge people as much as a dollar a minute to be on the phone. Yeah, that's insane. I remember when I went to college, it was a long time ago, 1983, my parents lived in Germany. And if you called long distance back then, it was about a dollar a minute. And you'd call and after two minutes, you had to hang up the phone. Stop down the phone. <laughs> You're killing us. And, yeah. and so the stress around phone calls when it was a dollar a minute was bizarre. Now, now it's free to call everywhere. But in prisons, there's still places to charge a dollar a minute. Like, how in the hell does that happen? It's contracting, right? Not only are... So there's two main things that these, like, companies... Um, these niche companies created, how they like really ate out this market because actually it used to be done by the regular companies, AT&T and Verizon and all them. They all left when these companies came in and they did two things. One, they convinced everybody we needed surveillance of phone calls. So they introduced all these surveillance technologies. And then secondly, they offered to pay the prisons and jails. That was like the big part. They said, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you let us do this, we'll share our you know revenues our profits with you right. so these aren't competitive government contracts like this isn't a competitive procurement process it's a profit sharing agreement between the government and private corporation to exploit people all right so let's agree me and you fundamentally agree there should be no phone exploitation in prisons and i know new york state was it new york state passed new york city new york city passed a law free we just got our third mike Nice. Yeah, so New York City is now fully free in jails. Uh, San Francisco uh, also, and as of yesterday, uh, San Diego became the third city to make phone calls so free. So only three cities in America make phone calls free from prison, which that's bizarre because phone calls are free everywhere else. Uh, who, who are the worst offenders? What cities? Hard to say. I would say all over the place, but Michigan is particularly bad in counties, Arkansas, Alabama. The thing that, that people should know, right, is that they're, the actual most exploitation, the worst rates charged are in jails, are in county jails. And I know you've had folks on you know, your show before talking about bail, right? Like who's sitting in a county jail? People who are awaiting trial? People who are not yet convicted? People who don't have money to bail out, but instead we're going to charge them yeah. $15 for a phone call, but they can't afford $150 to get out of prison? Yeah, insan insanity. Yeah, it's interesting that... You know, Brian Stevenson always talks about proximity. Most middle class to wealthy people have zero proximity to the criminal justice system. I shouldn't say middle class. Most wealthy people have zero proximity to it. You know, in, at least where I grew up in the middle class, we had very little proximity to it. Uh, and so you just don't understand. And in, in the first few times you're exposed, you're like, oh, shit, what the heck, you know. And it really does change. Like, there's some something we have to do in our country to to get people proximity if it's in media movies and trips schools should you know like somehow people have to understand how horrific the system is and they don't but you there's in new york city right we've got the richest city in the world and there are horrific pockets of you know criminal injustice and most people naively uh and not not because they're bad people just have no exposure 100 uh, percent 
And it's also have no understanding of the system. Like I tell people all the time, it's crazy that our our prisons are so opaque. Like you can't just walk into one. No, you in can't fact, get in. Even our elected officials sometimes can't walk into one. So it's like, what what are you keeping so secret and so hidden and so you know away from the rest of us? I mean, see? I hit on this. Tell me, it's bizarrely difficult mm-hmm. to get in. Bizarrely, we difficult. went in together. Yes, and even that, you know, actually we went through some hurdles that time we were trying to organize that that. Um, yeah, that trip, because we wanted people to have that proximity, exactly what you're talking about. And it was made incredibly difficult. Um, and and I think the one thing that I'll share that people may not know about me is that I actually, during law school, wanted that proximity in a, a really um, important way. And so I actually worked for three different departments of correction. Interesting. So I have exciting, um, a really exciting campaign that we're going to be launching soon and that we're... Uh, I'm just so honored to be able to lead this campaign. Uh, I was just um, invited to join the core team of the Abolish Slavery National Network. It's a network that was built in the last year uh, of organizers and folks who have been leading on the fight to uh, end the exception in the 13th Amendment that allows for slavery as punishment for a crime. And <laughs> Stop right there. Let's stop right there and let's rewind. So explain that we have an amendment, uh, we have a section in the 13th Amendment that allows for slavery to be punishment for a crime. That that exists in 2021 is just incomprehensible. It's completely incomprehensible. In fact, I was talking to my dad last night because we did um, a, a show last night and he learned that yesterday and he's got me as a daughter and you know you're so is that going down to the prisons in louisiana and you're working on the chain gang i mean is this what we're talking about i mean we're talking about people picking cotton in 2021 for 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 free and like under force of like under threat of like solitary confinement like we are talking about states building like entire wealth off of incarcerated labor this is like what people don't know about this system this is why you you can't walk into angle you can't walk into these facilities because if you do you'd see this and you know it's why journalists are like essentially just camping out next to prison so that they can see the trucks that are going in and out and so campaign to basically end free labor in prisons right so this campaign um so i joined as i mentioned um asnn as uh, as invited to be the lead organizer for the federal campaign. Uh, what's exciting about this network is that it is comprised of organizers who have won this already now in a few states. So not only is this in the U.S. Constitution, but because of the way in which the U.S. Constitution and laws are ratified from the federal system to the state system, this is also in every state constitution. Okay, And so in the last three years, there's been an incredible swell of work happening to change these state constitutions and three states have won in the last three years colorado nebraska and utah have all eliminated this exception from their their state constitutions and what's so exciting about that is that those are two red states and a purple state yeah that's awesome those are republican legislatures so what people need to know like like the listeners should know is that you know the criminal justice system isn't monolithic it is a patchwork of lots of grassroots organizations there's some big organizations yeah. but there are a ton of faith-based groups grassroots groups local exactly. organizing groups that together collaborate at times collaborate and sometimes <laughs> compete uh there's some messiness sometimes to try to push the ball up the hill and over yeah. the hill and uh it's awesome to hear that 
you're having some success. I think it's an exciting campaign. And I will just say it's the big thing for, you know, in the federal space will be to literally introduce. I mean, I think I would just say every time I've been saying this in the last like week, it feels so audacious. But to say that we're going to introduce the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Awesome. Constitution. I'm going to get a 28th logo here. If we had Merrick Garland right there and Joe Biden, number one, number two, in the reverse order, uh, who both are, you know, Garland's at least a centrist, you know, Biden is center left. Would you say, what would you say to him? It's a great question. I, I, you know, we've been asking in our space, we need to 100% uproot out, completely shut down the industry and economy that has been built around incarcerating people. We need to figure out a way and what we're driving for is to literally shut down this industry and shift an economy so that jobs are not dependent on people being in prison. I read an article today. It was about food. And there was this, um, the art, it's a New York Times op-ed. And it was, oh, the food in prisons is terrible. It was talking about how. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, so, but listen, there was a, a commentary in there about farming and how people inside are doing farming so that they can pr- provide better food for folks in the facility. And then there was a comment by some, it seemed like maybe a trade association or something re- like representing farmers, and they were like, oh, because of COVID, uh, institutional procurement around schools and, ha- like, and other things of that sort um, has gone down for, for farmers. And so they're like, they're looking to correctional institutions to like save the day. And I was like, you, this is, this is what's wrong with reform. Like the notion that we're going to save farmers, we're going to save farmers because correctional institutions don't go down. What, why is it so goddamn hard? Like, it's amazing how hard it is to change these, these rigid systems. Like, I think if you polled America, certainly the majority would say, okay, we should change this. And maybe that wasn't always the case, but I think certainly post-George Floyd, it's become the case. Um, but change happens so goddamn slow. It's really hard. I mean, like I would say on the telecom issue, like really simple. We actually polled. And we found that in every single jurisdiction, like every, no matter what the demographics were, we had over 50% support from the public to make phone calls free. And yet it's like we go into every state capital and have to battle out this fight. And it's sheriffs fighting. And it's, you know, it's all of this. And so it's vested interest just digging in. It's Yeah, it's the vested interest there. And so that's our job. Like at Worth Rises, we are one piece of the puzzle. Right. And our piece is we want to remove that vested financial interest. You know, when I talk about the work we do, and, and not just like the work we do, but the issue that we're trying to right. solve. Right? The issue is much bigger than the work. It's a gigantic issue. Exactly. When we talk about this issue, I, I tell you most people's like brains just hurt by the time they're done with the conversation, right? It's just like, Jesus, like what? Yeah, Cheetos. Like how much do Cheetos cost in a normal prison? Oh, I mean, they could be $3, they could be $8. I think literally- about that, $3 for a goddamn bag of Cheetos. Yeah. They're not even good for you. Like, not even know? that. I was talking to somebody on death row in Arkansas who said that a bag of Skittles was $8. A bag of Skittles. Yeah, we're taking the poorest people. They don't have, they're not making any money, so it's their families who have no money that are giving them money so they can spend it at the commissary where they're selling them shit at wildly overpriced. And that's going to make them sick. That's going to, right, um, destroy their health. Right now, I'm maybe as angry as you are. <laughs> um, how do you stay joyful? Cause I don't like, know, because you think I, I'm angry. I tease you about being angry, but you're a pretty joyful person. You're smiling, you're giggling. Like, how do you, 
How do you leave, even for a moment, this brutal battle you're in with vested interests that are hard to move? How do you stay positive? How do you stay joyful? How do you balance your life? You talk to people who are inside, you talk to families, and you find hope where they find hope. I will tell you, I think the most incredible, you know, resourceful, uh, resilient people that I know are serving tech, right? Um, I was just uh, filming something else, and I got a phone call from uh, Death Row in Arkansas. And the producer, like, walked out. She comes back, and I, after I got off the phone, um, I was like, oh... Um, are you cold? Like, I, I, there was, she looked like uncomfortable and she was like, I am, but I, I'm in a different place right now because seeing you get that phone call, I'm like, like, how is this even a thing? Like, we just spoke to somebody on Jethro in Arkansas who's remarkably upbeat. And I'm like, yeah, you have to find hope somewhere. And, um, and so that I think for me is a big part of like where you keep this going and you keep that hope and you keep, you see people who have suffered an incredible amount of trauma over and over and are still suffering that trauma right now who are hopeful, who are resilient and, um, and you borrow some of that strength. And then I'll just say for me, you know, I was born a fighter. Like there's some people who like, you know, recite affirmations in the morning I'm the person who's like, where are we going to war today? Like, that's where I get my energy from. It's where I feed. It's like, I'm a fighter. It's what I love to do. And so this feeds my energy. It doesn't deplete it. Awesome. Well, I would say you're a fighter and a lover. Uh, because there's joy. There's there's joy. There's compassion. Uh, it's awesome that you're in the, you're on the team. You're in the, you know, you're, you're leading the charge in lots of ways. Um, I'm more optimistic than most people in the criminal justice system that things are going to change. Uh, partly because I got in late. Uh, and I got in right as I saw change happening. And I think the opportunity for change is bigger than other people. I really think we've got this seven, eight year window where we can really flip the, flip the whole narrative. And so, and I think it's important to recognize that didn't happen overnight. There's a lot of foundation, right? We, we stand on the shoulders of, of, of all these people. A lot of them are completely on, you know, people all know Brian Stevenson, but there are 50 people that no one knows their names. Yeah. And Uh, there was, you know, decades of work before Brian. Yeah. Right. Like they're like this work goes really far back. Right. When I think about this fight to abolish slavery for good in the U.S., just think about how long that fight's been waged. So it's a it's a fight that's been going on for a long time. And I think, you know, that resiliency also gives us hope. So Bianca, how do people find out about Worth Rises? How do they get in touch with you? How do they follow you? What's your Twitter? So obviously you go to our website, worthrises.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Worth Rises. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Bianca Tylek. Well, B- Bianca, thanks a ton. I love the work you're doing. I love being able to sit down with you here next with Novo. Uh, we're going to be big cheerleaders and supporters and uh, good luck. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. All right. Thank you.